Welcome back to the COVID-19 and skiing versions of the Storm Skiing Podcast. If you're not familiar with this series, I banged out 10 of them back in the spring. When COVID was first surging and skiing had just shut down and none of us knew what the hell was going on. Now that we're a couple of months into the season, it seemed like a good time to dig back into these, starting with Schweitzer Mountain's decision to shut down twilight skiing over the MLK holiday weekend. First, though, my partners, the Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large-format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. The first issue is incredible. It's more of a work of art than a magazine. The thing is huge, first of all. The quality of the writing is unreal. Enormous, amazing photos. This is not like anything you've seen in snow sports media. It is very deep, incredibly varied, incredibly well-conceived. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com and you will get a PDF of that first issue as the crew works on issue 195 due out this spring. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. The Storm Skiing Podcast is also brought to you by Helly Hansen. You all know conditions in the Northeast can be unpredictable. And when you ski every week like my family does, you need to be prepared for anything, especially this year when your car is your base lodge. That's why we are rocking Helly Hansen gear from head to toe to keep us warm and dry no matter what Mother Nature throws at us. Helly Hansen gear is ready for anything. Because professionals who brave the world's harshest environments have been integral to the development of the brand's gear. This season, I'm gearing up in the Alpha Leafa Loft jacket. And the difference between this and other ski jackets is obvious the second you put it on. It is decked out with a Helitech waterproof, windproof, and breathable outer layer. It is lightweight and incredibly warm, even on the coldest days. In my old ski jacket, I had to double up my base layers not with the leaf aloft. Plus the life pocket, which stays two times warmer than a normal ski jacket pocket, keeps my phone from dying while I'm on the mountain all day long. If you want to get yourself new gear or you know someone who needs to refresh their ski kit, visit the Heli Hansen in Boston or Burlington, Vermont, and mention this Storm Skiing Podcast ad to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because 1877 is the year that Heli Hansen was founded. That's right, more than 140 years ago. Ten months. That's how long it's been since the entire U.S. ski industry shut down in March to help stop the spread of COVID-19. That means this isn't new to any of us. So none of us should be surprised when we get to an establishment and they ask us to mask up. It's a simple thing that we can all do to help stop the spread and to keep being able to do some of the things we love, like skiing. For some of you, that isn't good enough. You want to make this political. You want to make a statement. You're out skiing with your boys and you're like, hey, bros, check this out. You see this 16-year-old lift attendant? This chump asked me to mask up. I'm going to give that SOB a piece of my mind. You guys ready? Get your phones out. Because I am about to go legend. 
I've had enough of this freedom stealing BS. I'm going to tell this guy what he can do with his mask rule. Listen, I want this all over social because I am going to show these clowns exactly what's up. Really, bro? Because the rest of us just want to get our asses onto the lift and get up the mountain. Do you think any of us like wearing masks? You think the rest of us aren't sick of COVID? Look, if you don't like the way COVID's been handled, there are plenty of other ways to express your opinion about that, like voting. Keep that nonsense out of our lift lines because the rest of us didn't pay $95 for a lift ticket to watch you start a revolution in the Basin Express lift line. But that's exactly what's been happening in Schweitzer, which is why resort CEO Tom Chassie yanked night skiing for MLK weekend. Good job, guys. I hope it was worth it. Because you couldn't suck it up and mask up, other people couldn't ski. And that's not on the resort. That's on you, freedom bro. Look, we'll get through COVID. We will. But for now, we're still fighting our way through it. And 400,000 people are dead in this country because we've so catastrophically mishandled it. Partly because we can't even agree on something so simple as wearing a mask without turning it into a machine gun fight. I know some of you are bent that I'm mixing politics and skiing, but I don't see it that way. Politics found skiing, and I'm covering it. Hopefully, the two can part ways again soon, but for now, let's hear the full story from Schweitzer. Tom Chassie is the president and CEO of Schweitzer Mountain, Idaho. Schweitzer averages 300 inches of annual snowfall and has 2,900 acres of skiable terrain on a 2,400-foot vertical drop served by 10 lifts, including a high-speed six-pack. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you, Stuart. So let's get right into it here. On January 10th, you announced that you were shutting down twilight skiing at Schweitzer over the MLK weekend. That was from Friday, January 15th to Sunday, January 17th. What led you to that decision? Well, there's a few things that come into play. Um, You know, with COVID, we've had to limit our day ticket sales. And uh, every weekend we've been sold out. We were sold out most days during the Christmas holiday period. Uh, for night skiing, we didn't have any limits on night tickets. And uh, because of the limits during the day and being sold out, we've seen a huge increase in our volume at nighttime, more than we anticipated. I mean, typically on a night, we ski three or 400. It's not big for us. But, uh, you know, we've doubled some nights, almost tripled the number of visitors that we normally expect. So it's been pretty tough. You know, staffing-wise, we didn't anticipate that big of a crowd. And then with our lift protocols, uh, because of COVID, you know, we're not grouping people together that didn't travel together. So that sort of compounded the length of the lift lines, uh, and it's been a challenge. You know, so we get a little different demographic at nighttime as well. Uh, We get a lot of teens and young adults. They're just not tuned into our protocol, uh, and they're just not really prepared. So it's been a little bit of a challenge. So in the memo announcing this decision, you said that you would no longer, quote, tolerate the verbal abuse that has been directed toward our staff as they have attempted to enforce our safety requirements, end quote. Can you give us some examples here, Tom, of the sorts of confrontations that have been happening at Schweitzer? You know, it's mostly, you know, it's verbal abuse. Um, You know, people are hanging their hat on the, uh, you know, masks don't provide any protection. You know, we live in sort of a challenging area as well. uh, I'll give you an example. Today on the front page of the local paper, the sheriff had just gone in for his fourth term, and he was reminding people that, um, you know, he's not in favor of the mass mandate, and um, him and his team, they're not going to uh, they're not going to support it here in uh, Bonner County. 
you know, so the message that's going out from our, uh, you know, politically, it's uh, it's been a challenge. It's really for, up to us to enforce our own imposed mass mandate. So, you know, guests start yelling at our staff and it just hasn't been pleasant. Are there any specific examples you can get of the types of things they're saying? I mean, most of it really is just that, you know, the masks don't provide any, uh, any additional protection. Um, you know, profanity is uh, incorporated in some of those comments. And, you know, we're just not going to tolerate the kind of abuse. You know, we've been operating now for about 50 days. And uh, I can tell you the, the mass mandate enforcement here is uh, it, it's nonstop. You know, so the, the staff is, you know, they're dealing with that on a day to day basis. And it's just uh, their buckets are getting full. Have you had any instances where these confrontations have gotten physical? <laughs> Thank God, not yet. Oh, great. Great. So, so what's the protocol? So uh, I don't know who your frontline person is, who the, who the first, if it's the lifty or the ski patrol, someone asks a skier, snowboarder, please put up your mask. They uh, confront them about it verbally. What, what's the chain of command? What's that escalation look like? <laughs> so I've taken the initiative to actually be one of those frontline staff members. I usually start my weekend days at our uh, out-of-base lift. Um, I'll spend a couple of hours out there just sort of reminding people. I've had confrontations with people that are out there. You know, typically the way it goes, I give them an option. <laughs> I say, you know, if you want, we can go over to the ticket office right now. I'll roll you past the next year. Or you can kind of comply, put a mask on and go. Um, it, it, it's been a struggle. If I get someone who's really, really defiant, you know, we're not going to uh, physically grab and pull their pass. But we scan at the lifts. So once that skier goes through our scanning mechanism, I can go in and either put a note in their file or literally at that point in time block their pass. Mm. And that's going to precipitate a, a future meeting. We've had several of those. Um, honestly, I think they've gone reasonably well. After okay. somebody's been asked to sit for two weeks, uh, I, I, you know, they catch on and they get it. And they send a message to uh, you know, most of their, uh, their friends and associates. It's been pretty effective for us. So have you had to remove people from the resort as a result of any of these confrontations? Well, like I said, we give them that option. Physically, we have not had to move anybody out. Usually they, uh, you know, they'll comply. I carry, and everybody that's out there, we carry a disposable mask in our pocket. So if somebody says, well, I didn't bring one, hey, it's not a problem. I got one right here. It's disposable. You know, I'll help you put it on if you want. And, uh, you know, they might be a little bit uh, discouraged with it, but I would say for the most part, they'll... Uh, They'll take advantage of it so they continue on their day. And how many people have taken you up on that offer to roll their pass into the next season? Well, we came up with a plan. Um, you know, when I first made the announcement that if we couldn't get compliance, we'd pull the plug on the whole operation. But if somebody felt uncomfortable being here, we'd give them the opportunity to go ahead and roll their pass. We had 500 people take advantage of that. Oh, wow. And have you had to just pull passes involuntarily for longer than that two-week period? Uh, not at this point. Usually two weeks is enough to send a pretty strong message. We have a few that are out there right now that have come back, I think, this weekend. We'll have some dialogue, and they're either on board or they're done. So when they find out that you've gone into the system and suspended them, how does that usually go? Is there usually Are they usually pretty mad at first? <laughs> uh, maybe, but by the time they get to us, cooler heads prevail. Uh, I can tell you most of them are apologetic. They totally understand. Um, we haven't had any repeat offenders. And how has mass compliance been? It seems like this is more of a problem specifically during your twilight skiing. So it's been pretty good during the day. Uh, it's improving. You know, I, I'll be honest in the beginning, we were probably about 80%. 
uh, this weekend, I worked a lift line uh, in one of my other uh, senior executives worked one of the other base area lifts. And honestly, for the first time, we sort of came together at the end of two hours. And I said, you know what? I think I was 100 percent this morning. Oh, wow. And she said the same thing. So we're, we're definitely gaining ground. You know, some of it, though, is because we've been diligent to work those lifts early in the morning. You know, now we're getting like, ah, damn, there's Tom. <laughs> Time to mask up. <laughs> I just have to look at them now. And they're, they understand. And I don't think most of the people are being uh, resistant. Literally, they forget. You know, they go up, they take a run, they come back down. They're all excited about their run. And literally, I just have to look at them. It's like, oh, that's right. You got to put it up. So as long as we're out there to continue to enforce it, I think most people are, are pretty compliant. So what do you think accounts for that difference, Tom, between the day and the night? Is it just that the, the younger crowd that you get? Yeah, I think so. You know, during the daytime, we have a significant amount of pass holders. And because we've been out there consistently, you know, they're on board. The night crew is just, like I said, it's just sort of a little different demographic. They're just not tuned into what our expectations are. You know, they haven't been here during the daytime. And, and when they're here, they're not prepared. They don't have any masks. So, like I said, we have, uh, we have a pocket full and we just try to get them on board. Do you think that part of the dynamic at play here is, you know, these are young people. They're out with their friends and, and they feel like they're being called out in front of their friends and they want to react by just kind of making a scene and thumping their chest a little bit. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I used to be a teacher and the way that a student would react to you one on one was completely differently than if you encountered them with the same issue in front of their friends. Yeah, I, I would I would concur. I think that's part of the issue we're having at nighttime as well. You get someone in the group, it gets a little bit defiant. They're going to kind of stand up for everybody in the group. And, you know, unfortunately, those are the ones who will sit down for a couple of weeks, but then it sends a message to the rest of the group. Yep. So I want to look at this now from the point of view of your staff. Uh, you referenced your staff in that memo and saying, look, they, they need a break. Yep. How exhausting is it for them to constantly have to remind people to mask up? It's, uh, it's one thing that I really didn't anticipate is the effect that it was going to have on our staff. It's... Um, it, it's tiring. Uh, the, you know, the term I've been using internally, I think a lot of our staff is suffering from COVID fatigue. Just that constant reminder day after day after day. It's just, it, it's, it's wearing them. And who is primarily charged with enforcing this? You know, you said you're, you've been out there, you send your other senior leaders out there. Uh, I've seen resorts where they, they station a patroller uh, at the front of the lift queue. Um, is, is it mostly following the lifties? Who's, who's absorbing this for the most part? Well, we've got a, a variety of groups. So we try to start the day with our executive team just to sort of set the right tone. We've got uh, mountain hosts that are out there working the crowd on the weekends. You know, our lift operations team, uh, you know, they've got other responsibilities, you know, making sure that everybody's loading safely. We have scanners out there. They remind people, but their primary objective is to make sure that our lift loading procedures go as planned. Um, honestly, it's our senior team, our managers, and some of the uh, – in the non-lift areas. So if you look at the food and beverage operations of the whole bit, a lot of our managers are out there. You know, we haven't seen um, as much of an issue, I'll be honest, indoors. That was our biggest concern coming into the season is how we were going to manage our crowds indoors. And most folks have sort of taken our advice, you know, get ready in your car. We've got food trucks down in the main parking lot. A lot of people are going there for lunch. So we really haven't seen the impact on the day lodge as much as we have in our lift operations. So how are you holding up? I, I'm sure you're not sitting around thinking of ways to make people's <laughs> lives more difficult. But at the end of the day, you have a business to run. 
the pandemic is real yep. and you have to find ways to deal with it and stay in business. So how hard is it to keep pushing that boulder uphill and say, look, this is not about politics. I'm not trying to make a statement here. This is what I have to do to keep the mountain open. You know, it's amazing the uh, the support that we've had from the local community. I can tell you, you know what, again, I worked at LiftLine in the morning. People are like, you know, high-fiving us. You guys are doing the right thing. Stay the course. You know, those words of encouragement go a long way, not just for myself, but the staff. You know, the email threads that are coming out, the feedback we've had, I think that's part of the motivation to keep everybody moving in the same direction. You know, there's a handful of people out there that are on the other side of the fence. Um, they can be pretty vocal. Uh, you know, you just, you got to roll with it. You take the good with the yeah. bad. Yeah, because no one wants to go back to March when we got the rug pulled out from under us, right? We, we No one knew what was going on, but now we've kind of figured out, okay, this is how you mitigate it. If you want to stay open, we got to do it this way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you make the announcement. Um, what was the reaction like, I guess, first of all, from the customers that you were going to cancel night skiing for three days? Uh, it was kind of a mix. I would say that overall, the, the feedback was very favorable. You know, we had a handful of people out there that were pretty discouraged because their only opportunity to ski is at nighttime. Yeah. Um, you know, working families and the whole bit, they're not pass holders. Um, so our night skiing operation, uh, the way we operate it, it's, um, it's sort of an amenity for a hotel guest. And in addition to that, it's a fundraiser for a bunch of nonprofits in Sandpoint. Oh, okay. So we sell lift tickets to the nonprofits for $5. They resell them for 10 They keep the difference. So it's an affordable way for a family in the Sandpoint area to come up and enjoy what we have to offer. Uh, they get four hours worth of skiing for 10 bucks. It supports these uh, local nonprofits. Come on. But uh, like I said, it's a little bit demo- different demographic that's coming here at nighttime. And, you know, we just need to work a little bit harder. Were there some customers that were disappointed? Like, look, I'm masking up. You know, I know there's knuckleheads oh, yeah. out here, but why do I have to suffer for that? Yeah, I mean, that was part of our, our efforts as well. We don't want to punish the people that are sort of in favor and supporting our cause. You know, we had a few people that, on I'll be honest, we had a couple of lodging guests that checked out saying, hey, you know, part of our motivation to be here was for night skiing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, personal decision. Uh, how did your employees feel about it? Were, were they relieved for the break? Oh, it was amazing how well they just sort of rallied. Kind of the same thing. Uh, you know, coming into a holiday weekend, what we had the the weekends prior to that, I think everybody was very concerned that our volume would just be totally out of control. We had a fireworks show on Saturday night, and usually that's some of our biggest night skiing nights to begin with. So for us to pull the plug on that, I think most of our staff honestly was relieved that they didn't have to face an onslaught of people coming in at nighttime after a you know long holiday weekends. And were you able to repurpose some of them to day shifts if they still wanted to work? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No question there. So how about the owners? I, I, I'm not sure what the ownership structure is of Schweitzer and, or who you answer to, um, but how much latitude do you have to make these kind of decisions yourself? And at what point do you have to clear it with them first? <laughs> it's 100% in, uh, honestly in my control. Uh, we get a very supportive ownership group. Uh, it's a it's a family. They've been involved with the ownership here for over 20 years. Uh, they've got a lot of confidence in the way that we operate the resort. Um, yeah, they don't get involved in day-to-day operations at all. Uh, we have an advisory board that I report to. Uh, there's a ski operator on the board, uh, Chris Diamond. He just retired from Steamboat as their, uh, their president. He sits on our board. So he sits on our board. But again, nobody uh, you know from the board level gets involved in day-to-day operations. 
you know, we've been able to provide a, you know, a profitable operation for them. They're very supportive. It's, uh, they're totally hands off. So the weekend's over. You didn't have nice skiing. I'd imagine you were fairly busy running the resort and not thinking about it. But now that it's over, do you feel like you made the right decision? Absolutely. There's no question. So what's the plan now? Are you going to turn night skiing back on this week and see how it goes? We are, but we got a little different strategy. You know, so I mentioned that we, uh, you know, a lot of our night skiing is based on supporting nonprofits in town. So there's been, uh, you know, a fair amount of tickets that are pre-sold. They're already in people's hands. They're valid anytime we have night skiing. So our plan for this coming weekend will be to reopen, but we won't have any tickets available other than what's already in the marketplace. Mm, And then going forward, like we do in the daytime, we'll limit the number of tickets that are available for night skiing. So I think right now we probably have, I don't know, 12, 1400 tickets in the marketplace, but they're valid anytime there's night skiing. So we'll, uh, we'll operate this weekend. We'll see how many get redeemed and that'll determine how many we make available going forward. You know, in addition to that, we'll, uh, you know, we'll staff up a little bit higher than we typically are. You know, we'll have our executive team uh, here at nighttime just to kick things off. You know, it's not a late night, it's twilight skiing. So that ticket's good from three to seven. Okay. People won't be able to just drive up to the mountain and buy a ticket. They have to find one of those ones that's already out there if they want one. That's correct. That's correct. Yep. So we've messaged that. A message uh, went out today on social media and, um, you know, we'll follow up with that as well. Be on our website and the whole bit. So you mentioned the local mask mandate and I want to talk about this a little bit more. Idaho does not have a statewide mask mandate. It's the only serious ski state, as far as I can tell, that does not. So can you talk a little bit about how those local politics and in, in that local decision, I guess, to not require masks, how that makes your job a little more difficult as far as, you know, they're out in Idaho and they have one set of rules, they come onto your resort and they have another side. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a challenge. So the state is not, or the governor has not initiated a statewide mask mandate. He's really leaving it up to the local health districts. So within our health district, uh, Panhandle Health, that covers the eight northern counties in Idaho. So Bonner County, where we operate the ski resort, is one of those. So the health district has gone ahead and initiated a mandatory mask mandate in the, these eight northern counties. The day that they initiated that mask mandate, the local county commissioners, one of them put together a proclamation that they were going to vote on the following week to literally defund the health district in uh, opposition to the mass mandate. Mm -hmm. The same day, the local sheriff came out and uh, front page of the paper uh, indicated that he and his team would not support uh, the mass mandate as well. So really, it, it, you know, kind of falls on us to, uh, you know, to support the community. Uh, We're not going to get any support from any, uh, any outside agency. So it does make it pretty challenging. You know, a large percent of our skiers come out of uh, Spokane. That's our big drive market. You know, so there is a mask mandate in uh, over in Washington state. So that kind of helps us. You know, most of our uh, pass holders come out of that area. They used to wear in masks. It hasn't been a big deal. But uh, again, us having to enforce the mandate has made it pretty challenging. So I'm sure you're seeing the same dynamic play out in other businesses nearby, like any national chain, like if you have a local Walmart, for example, I'm sure they have a mask mandate. Are, are you seeing this same sort of dynamic play out at these local businesses? Negative. <laughs> no, oh, they don't. No, 
They're uh, they're just not enforcing the mask mandate. I mean, they've I got see. signages yeah to the store that masks are required. But I would say most of those low, the uh, the big box stores, uh, they they've I think they've thrown in the towel because of the uh, you know the challenges they've had with their staff. Just saying it's the same thing. Verbal abuse. I'm not going to mask up. The the health district has no authority. You know what are you guys doing? Literally, I think they've just given up on it. So just help us understand for those of us that aren't in Idaho. So if, if you're going to the grocery store, for example, what what percentage of the customers would you say are wearing masks there? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess I'd say I don't go to the grocery store often, you know, from what my wife tells me. It's maybe, maybe 50 percent. Okay. Maybe. Could be lower than that, depending on the time of day you go to the store and the whole bit. So can you help us understand any other dynamics at play in the local or state culture that may be contributing to this resistance specifically to wearing masks? Uh, I'm not sure I really have a strong opinion on that right now. But you've stayed the course, right? So you're saying a lot of these big places, they've, they've said, you know what, it's just not worth it. What, what has made it worth it for you? Why have you chosen to, to be consistent with this and say, you know what, this is how we're going to do it at Schweitzer Mountain. Um, if you don't like it, I'll refund your pass, but we are going to enforce this. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's uh, it's our staff. You know, we got 650 employees here. We're a huge economic engine for the local community. You know, when we had to shut down back in March. Uh, it has a rippling effect. It's not just affect our business. It's every business in the community. Um, you know, so I feel like we owe it to the community uh, to do what we can so that we can continue to operate, keep our staff safe. Um, it's pretty important locally. I can tell you, you know, from a local perspective, you know, we've sort of taken the lead uh, in this. And, you know, I, I would say the restaurants in town, uh, the mom and pop stores, they're all on board. They kind of get it. It's unfortunate, like you say, some of the big box stores, they've kind of thrown in the towel. Yeah, it, it's just surprising. I, I think because, you know, I'm in New York and we got hit so hard so early that everyone's just wearing them all the time everywhere. So it's and I realize it's different all around the country, but. The, the big box stores here are some of the most uh, stern about it and, and have the really? you know, people standing outside. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to see the different approaches across the country. Um, yeah. Curious, Tom, if the state of Idaho put together any sort of COVID operating guidelines or protocols for ski areas prior to the start of the season. I know we saw those in New York. Uh, well, all the New England states put together operating guidelines and they were a little different state to state, but but there was sort of a set of you know, you could load this many people on a chairlift or this percentage of people, you know, your lodge has this percent capacity. Did Idaho do anything similar? Uh, negative. You know, it was really, we submitted our plan to the local health district. You know, we were in, uh, originally at the start of the season, just before the start, we were in stage four. In theory, in Idaho, that meant you were pretty much wide open. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of weeks beforehand, we went to stage three, which reduced, um, you know, gatherings to groups no larger than 50 people. And then the week before we opened, it went down to stage two, which groups of no more than 10 people, hmm. you know, so for us, we had to submit a plan to the health district. And, uh, you know, through there, we put all the right protocols together as far as social distancing, mask mandate, the way we were going to work with our, uh, you know, lift mazes, social distancing there, ghost lanes. So we did. We submitted a plan to the health district. They approved it. Uh, they've been very supportive. Uh, I mean, they encourage us to continue on the path that we've been on. Uh, you know, every time we put out a post on social media, they'll sort of weigh in and wish that everybody in the uh, in the county would, uh, 
take the same uh, stance that we've taken. Do you have like a Idaho Ski Areas Association or, or some way for you to, to work with the other ski areas in the state to set common standards? Yeah, that's affirmative. Uh, the Idaho Ski Association, in addition to that, you know, we're a member of the National Skiers Association. I sit on the national board as a representative of the Northern Market Mountain region. You know, we've embraced the, uh, you know, the, the national standard that's out there right now. Be well, ski well. Um, you know, consistency with signage across the industry. Uh, very similar protocols across the industry. So I think, you know, as an industry, we get it. We totally understand. Uh, I think in most communities, the ski resort is the economic engine that drives uh, success for everybody. So you have a long list of COVID protocols on your website. Yep. Uh, other than mass compliance, have you had challenges enforcing any of those? Uh, I don't believe so. I mean, that's been our biggest challenge. Uh, how about the temperature checks when, when people come in for lodging? Any resistance to that? Uh, negative. Not at all. Uh, you know, most of the, the ski, the temperature checks, we do it at the front desk of lodging, check it in, and we do it down in our daycare with, uh, you know, any of the kids that are coming in. Uh, Staff-wise as well. Anybody that's going into a, a staff location, any outside guests that are coming into any uh, behind the scenes location, we're still doing that. We're logging everything and it's been uh, it's been well received. It's been accepted. So other than COVID compliance issues, uh, how, how's your season going, Tom, in general? Actually, all in all, we're, we're, we're doing well. Uh, you know, we got plenty of snow. There's plenty of demand. You know, with the limited day tickets, we're short in a couple of areas. You know, obviously equipment rentals, uh, since we limited the number of uh, day tickets, that's had an impact there, a little bit in ski school. And a couple of our food and beverage operations, It's, I mean, some of the uh, food and beverage operations are, you know, they're hitting their financial goals. It's been pretty amazing that others are lagging behind. The sit-down restaurants have done pretty well. We're a little different. You know, some of the states, you know, there's no indoor dining here. We can provide indoor dining as long as there's social distancing between the tables. You know, our bars, we've converted those into sit-down restaurants. You know, one of the initiatives from the health department is that the, at a bar, you can't walk up and get a drink. You have to be seated. Uh, so, you know, we have a, a hostess. We manage the number of people in all those facilities. Everyone's seated. You know, the sports are on the TVs. People are still enjoying themselves. But, you know, there's no bands. There's no app parade. There's no dancing. Um, but it's, it's been okay. All right. Well, it sounds like you're making the best of it. Um, we have a, a couple of minutes here. Can we talk about the mountain for a minute? Sure. Long-term, uh, Schweitzer is absolutely huge. What's the future long-term kind of development plan for Schweitzer? Actually, right now we're in the middle of uh, building a, a new hotel. It's a uh, boutique hotel. It's only 31 rooms. But, uh, you know, it's an opportunity for us for growth. Um, you know, within our region, uh, we have uh, my number. I think we have about 80,000 unique skiers. Collectively, ski about 500,000 days. And that's spread out between uh, five resorts. Uh, Lookout Pass, Silver Mountain, Schweitzer, Mount Spokane, and 49 degrees north. Uh, we do more than half of the visits. The rest is spread out between the other resorts. So I've been here now for 15 years, and I don't feel like the market has grown substantially. The market shifts a little bit. You know, last year we put in two new lifts in the North Bowl, so we got a little bit higher penetration rate. So for us to grow, we need to go further out into the marketplace. Uh, right now, about 10% of our visits come out of the Seattle market. We feel like there's a big opportunity for us in Seattle, but we're limited by lodging. Um, you know, we've got about 120 units in our lodging program. Most weekends are sold out. So for us to continue to grow, like I said, we have to reach out further. So lodging is a key component. 
So the new hotel will come online in November. In addition to that, um, you know, we've got a couple of real estate projects teed up. So literally here, I'm not sure you're aware, we own all the land here. We're not on Forest Service land or state land. We own 7,000 acres of land fee simple. So we have a lot of development opportunities. So our future really is, uh, is um, to be more of a destination, fly in. You know, Spokane's not too far away, uh, the Powder Highway. So you come in, fly into Spokane, spend a couple of days here at Schweitzer, and then go north of the border. You go up to uh, Red, Whitewater, uh, Lake Louise. Uh, we're within a five-hour drive of Lake Louise. So we're, we're situated in a very unique location. I'm not sure most people in the industry are aware of all the, uh, the, uh, the ski opportunities that surround us. Uh, it's just a spectacular place to be. Uh, that's that's pretty good, pretty good neighborhood to be in. As far as the potential expansion, you know, the resort currently sits on 2,600 acres. You said you have several thousand. Where could we potentially see expansion in relation to the current trail map? We'd go north. Uh, so if you look up the north end of the resort, there's a T-bar that goes to a peak called Little Blue. There's another peak north of that called Big Blue. We own just about to the top of Big Blue. So at some point in the future, we could expand there. So in addition to the 29 acres, the 2,900 acres that we ski in bounds, uh, we've got a concessionaire, a cat skiing operation that goes off the West Bowl, and they ski on about 4,000 acres out there as well. I mean, if you combine it all, we're skiing on about 7,000 acres, but we don't include the cat skiing operation in our overall acreage, just with lift service. That's terrific. And if you did expand up uh, to that other peak out, off of the T-bar, which direction would the trails be in? They would be facing uh, east for the most part. There's some great terrain up there right now. I mean, we <laughs> honestly, we could add a thousand acres just by moving a rope. Oh, wow. And <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in Idaho, if you want to make that kind of expansion, since you own the land, yeah. what does the regulatory process look like for that? <laughs> we submit a building permit to the uh, to the county. It's that it, it's pretty it's easy. I mean, obviously, from a you know sustainability standpoint, you know we want to be responsible as we grow. But from a building standpoint, typically we submit a you know an application to the county, turn around in about thirty days, and you know we go to town. That's amazing to hear. I'm sure you talk to your colleagues in uh, in New England, in particular <laughs> in Vermont. I mean, to to put up a, a chairlift takes a lot of permitting or, or dig a new pond or whatever. It's, it's, it's a pretty intense process. Oh yeah. You know, before I came here, I was the managing director at Atatash in New Hampshire. I'd been there for 15 years and a portion of the resort was on forest service land. And, you know, during my tenure, we wanted to extend the Alpine slide. Mm-hmm. It was on an existing road. There was no excavation or anything. And it took us four years to get through the process. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty tough. So, so that's that's an interesting background. So you so you were in New Hampshire for a while, uh, for a long time, and then you came out west. Talk a little bit about that difference between what it's like to run a ski area in New England as compared to the Northern Rockies. It snows here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a, it's it, it's a different vibe, uh, different culture here. Um, you know, it's more like you know. I, I'll be honest. I was back in New England, and somebody had a beef. You know, they're pointing their finger into your chest like you got to fix this right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I come here to Idaho and someone's like, hey, I got an issue. Can we go have a coffee and talk about this? <laughs> and it's just a totally different vibe. Yeah. Uh, up until you ask them to wear a mask, right? <laughs> yeah, I think the East Coast is coming out of them, whether they, you know, come from there or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so so last thing here, I'm, I'm just curious about uh, because you're, you know, obviously you have a huge mountain 
very built up. Looks like a great operation. Not as well known as maybe Sun Valley or some of these other places. Um, have you yep. considered uh, Indie Pass partnership or or any of these other multi passes as a way to kind of join one of these larger coalitions? We were one of the initial members in the Powder Alliance. Um, that's changed a little bit over the last couple of years. So now we just have direct relationships with a variety of resorts in our region. Uh, you know, we we do some reciprocal for our pass holders with. Uh, with Whitefish, with Fernie, uh, Castle up in BC, Whitewater, uh, let me see, uh, Sugar Bowl in California. This is a handful of uh, um, Bridger Bowl over in Montana. So we have a variety of reciprocal programs for our pass holders. But, uh, you know, we're always looking at opportunities. I mean, for us to get involved with one of the bigger products, whether it's uh, Epic or Icon, it just it increases our reach in the marketplace to be associated with one of those. But it's got to be the right time and the right product for us. Have you looked at the Indy Pass at all? Uh, yeah, we did. We just don't feel like we're a good fit for that. All right, Tom. Well, I, I appreciate your time today. I hope that when you bring night skiing back this week, there are minimal issues for you and the staff, and you guys can just enjoy the rest of the season. Well, thanks for having me today. Someday you're going to have to get out here and experience it. I, I will let you know as, as soon as as soon as these travel restrictions are lifted, <laughs> I am going to be skiing everywhere I can. Right now, I'm pretty much uh, pretty much stuck to New York, which which has been fun because we do have a lot of ski areas and I've been uh, exploring a lot. But I usually take a couple trips out west, and and I'm missing those big time. Yeah, I mean our challenge is with the border closed. You know, I think we spend a fair amount of time going north. Yeah, I mean, how much of your traffic does typically come from Canada? I, I honestly, for here, it's not much. We, uh, we're part of the Louise Plus card. So that's their frequency card. We're at Lake Louise. Um, that's our biggest driver, you know, right now because of the, uh, the exchange rate. Our Canadian business has really tapered off. The Louise Plus card has been kind of a salvation for us. We're the only U.S. resort on the Louise Plus card. So that's been a benefit for us. I guess what you're saying is you can't get north of the Powder Highway, which, which is correct. a bummer. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully that'll all be there for you next year. And um, as soon as I can make it out to Schweitzer, I will let you know, because I would love to check it out at some point. It looks amazing. It is. All right. Thank you, man. That's Tom Chassie, president and CEO of Schweitzer Mountain, Idaho. This place looks incredible. Stop ruining it, freedom, bro. It's not worth it. Focus on the shred. We'll all be better off. If you like that, we'll have another COVID-19 and skiing podcast in a few weeks with Ski Vermont President Molly Mihar. We also have a solid lineup on the Storm Skiing Podcast. This week, Bolton Valley President Lindsay Delorier. Next week, Wyndham President Chip Siemens. The week after that, Sunday River General Manager Brian Hian. You can hear all of those as soon as they're live by subscribing to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also, follow me on Twitter at Stormski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.